0: I'm going to teach today. So um, if you're ready to move with me, um, we're just gonna go through. I have a lot of scripture, um, and I'll I'll be as surprised as you as what comes out because as usual, every time when I when I review and I go over this things change. So I really have absolutely no idea uh, what's, what's going to end up. But I just, I just believe that, that, that um, the word is sanctified and that every word that comes forth from my lips is, is the word of God. And, and that there would be no deception and no, no kind of um, just no hidden agenda in the word, but it would come forth pure. To our hearts. So um, I have a PowerPoint, I think. Do they have it? So um, if you just put on the first slide, I do. I, I am the chaplain at Susquehanna Health and Wellness. And so every week I do a Bible study and I put together a PowerPoint because I'm a, I'm a full believer that as many senses that are involved in the teaching process, the better it gets down deep inside of us. So if we can not only hear, but if we can also see. If we can not only hear or see, but if we can also touch and, and also taste. So as many of the senses that we can use um, when, we're, when we're in a teaching situation, the more it'll get down deep inside of us. And it's okay if it, oh, there it is, okay. So. Um, Beginning I'm teaching from the book of Isaiah to begin with beginning in the the very first chapter of Isaiah he pro, he is prophesying to Israel of the troubles and the distresses that have come upon them bec- and will continue to come upon them because of being overpowered by their enemies Israel was given over to their enemies many times after leaving Egypt because every time they rebelled against God, God's protection would lift, and then their enemies would come and conquer them. In chapter 8, verses 21 through 22, Isaiah speaks of what happens to them as a people and as a nation when they are conquered by their enemies. Isaiah says, they will pass through the land. So this land that God had promised them, this land that they had taken possession of, when they are conquered by their enemies, that, that land is no longer theirs to occupy. They just pass through that land. And they pass through it dejected and hungry. And it will turn out that when they are hungry they will become enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Second slide. And they will be driven away into darkness. I'll just say, okay. So... Um, First Corinthians chapter 10: 11 tells us that the lives of those in the Old Testament can serve as examples to us. And one of the practices in the Old Testament that didn't carry over into the New Testament was that they fought a physical enemy. We do not fight with flesh and blood. We don't do that. Um, our enemies, our enemies are our own flesh and Satan. Our flesh will draw us into sin. James 1, 14 through 15 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That is the lust of the flesh. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So our own flesh is our enemy our own flesh is what we have to war against and then we also have an enemy we have satan the word says that the thief comes only to still steal kill and destroy but the enemy prowls around our enemy prowls around looking for someone to devour so when we are overcome by sin we give place to the enemy Our inner state becomes much like the outer state of the Israelites. We live in distress, we live in anguish, we live in anger, and we live in gloom. When sin overcomes us, we are driven into darkness. But God in his mercy causes a hunger to rise up that if we let it, will lead us to him instead of being driven into darkness. Now, there is a difference between being hopeless and hungry. That's what dejected means. It means hopeless. So when they are overpowered by their enemy, they become hopeless. And this hopelessness causes a hunger to rise up within them. There's a difference between being hopeless and hungry and being hopeful and hungry. The one is, it comes about because of sin. The other comes about because out of our relationship. So one of the results one of the result of yeah I said that already as long as as they curse god instead of repentant they instead of repenting they stayed in darkness as will we So I just wanted I had a uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about cursing god and just what exactly that it means Um, I had a friend who, and we were friends for a long time, and her husband ended up getting dementia or had, you know, had, was in an Alzheimer's, and he ended up, if you know anything about the disease, it progresses, and at at first, you can hardly tell that they have it, and as time goes on, there's a progression of it to the point where it's no longer safe, Um, for them to be at home because they may wander. So they end up in a home. And it progresses to the point where um, the person actually, it appears to those who see them as if they have absolutely no idea what's going on. They, um, they, They do not seem to be connected to the world around them. They don't know who people are. And she walked with her husband through this And it got to the point where she would come to me and say, I don't understand why God doesn't just take him home. What, you know, what, what purpose is he serving? What is, what, what's going, what, how can God use him in the state that he's at? You know, his, his life just appears to be useless. Why doesn't God just take him home? And I didn't really know what to say to her except to say, you know, I don't have all the answers for that. But this one thing I know, it is that God is good. When we attribute to God characteristics that he does not possess, when we accuse him of, of doing a work in our lives that he did not have a hand in, that is cursing God. When we blame God for this sickness that we have, that he put it on us. When we have when we are in trouble with things and we blame God because after all he could have gotten out he could have gotten us out of it. That is cursing God because we are we are we are attributing God like we are saying about God that he doesn't care. Like, she did she did not know that, but what she was actually saying was, God doesn't know what he's doing. And that is attributing to God a, a characteristic that does not belong to him. It's giving him credit for a, a work, or, or trying to put on him a blame for a work that he never had his hand in. That is cursing God. And so... When the Israelites cursed God, they were, sa- they were basically saying, well, it's your fault that we're in this mess. When actually it was their own sin, it was them being led off into darkness that allowed them to be conquered by their enemies. So, um, Romans 8, this is slide three. <laughs> Romans 8 says, for the mind set on the flesh is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I want to just explain about our carnal nature. Our carnal nature, or our flesh nature, is our fallen human nature. And it is driven by sin. The natural desires of our carnal nature are contrary to the word of God. After we are born from above, we receive into our spirits his nature. Our God nature desires only what is pure and good. Even though our spirits are completely changed, our flesh nature is still very much alive. Our carnal nature is what urges us to sin, and the Holy Spirit is compelling us to obey God. We are in a continuous battle. The winner is determined by our own wills. Now, the word says that we become slaves or we become dominated by the one we obey. If we listen and obey our flesh, our carnal or our sin nature, then we become dominated by sin. Sin is foreign domination. For God never created us to be ruled by sin. He created us to rule over sin. Next slide. God describes this way, God describes sin this way in Genesis 4. He says, sin is crouching at your door It desires you, but you must master it. If we don't conquer sin, we will be conquered by sin. We will lose possession of our inheritance. We will no longer be able to occupy the promises God has given us. We are driven away into darkness unless we repent. God, our creator, designed mankind to bring him pleasure. Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We were designed to give him pleasure. We were not designed to sin. So when sin comes and conquers us, that that is foreign domination. That is being conquered by an enemy that God never intended to, to, um, to, come to rule over us, but he intended for us to rule over that enemy. Now, we all know from scriptures, even though that is true, we all know from scriptures that it says that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And sin, in its simplest definition, means missing the mark. So we all have missed the mark according to scriptures, but also according to scriptures, we don't have to keep missing the mark. Listen to this scripture in 1 John 2.1. The word says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye may not sin. So do you think John was wasting his time writing all of this? to the people who would read it, he was writing it for a purpose, and that purpose was was so that we would receive the truth of what he was saying, and we could actually come to a place where we would not sin. And it goes on to say, and if any man sin, not when any man sin, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, I want to just take a little sidestep here and talk about God's mercy. I think I think that we can get into uh, it can be we can get into a place where we become so familiar with the forgiveness of God and so familiar with pleading the blood and so familiar with um, with repentance and all of those christian disciplines that we that we do to live a life of victor- to live a victorious life it almost becomes like a routine for us and we get to the place where we feel as if you know mercy is something that we're entitled to and when I, when I think of mercy, I, when I get a picture of what mercy is, what I imagine is that there is a person, just imagine a person who committed the worst crime that you could ever think of. We could probably have as many different scenarios in our mind as there are people in this room, but just imagine that person. And that person gets caught. And that person goes before the, the courts, before the justice system, and he doesn't, this person does not have an advocate, someone to stand up for him. And, and by all rights, the jury has found this person guilty of that crime. And the person has no recourse because that person knows that, yes, I did do that. I, you know, so he has nothing to say. So then he gets thrown into prison Gets the death sentence, thrown in the prison, waiting, and in the meantime, there's appeal after appeal after appeal, and years get on goes on, and every time there was an appeal, the person is denied the appeal, and then the day comes, and and that person is is you, you, did, you ever, did you ever see the movie Dead Man Walking? <laughs> That's what I think of. It's it's the the. Um, the path that that a condemned prisoner walks from the cell to the place of execution. So just imagine this person going, all hope, hope is gone. You know, hope, there is no more hope, we've appealed everyone we could appeal to, and there's nothing, I, I have to face the penalty. And so they're walking into the place and he gets strapped to the table. And they, you know, they begin the intravenous, the, the injections, and the first couple ones are, you know, are not lethal, but then it gets to the last injection. And the guy's about ready to push open the button, and all of a sudden the phone rings, and they stop. And the guard answers the phone, and it's the governor. And the governor says, I grant him clemency, let him go. That is mercy. And that is mercy every time. That is not mercy just one time in your life when you accept Christ as your savior. Every single time we come to a place where we recognize that our actions or our behaviors has, has caused, caused great, um, great um, sorrow or mourning to the heart of God. That that every time we we do that and we come to Him, we hope. The word says in Psalms that we are to hope for mercy. Mercy isn't something we're entitled to, even as Christians. Mercy is something that we hope for. Because every one of us, when we've sinned, when we miss the mark, when we come short of the glory of God, every single one of us is that prisoner every single one of us is hoping for the mercy of God now we have the promises of God yes his mercies are new every morning and yes we receive those mercies we receive his mercy but i i just i just don't want us as sons and daughters of a merciful God to ever become so familiar with his mercy that we do not that we are not grateful for it that we, that we cease hoping for, just, oh, God will forgive me, you know. So he, he knows I'm human. I've heard that before. He knows I'm only human. He knows I'm like this. Mercy is a gift. Mercy is, is God. And we welcome mercy into our lives as an honored, as an honored presence, not as a familiar friend. If that, so that's my soapbox on the mercy of God. <laughs> so um, uh, that, then we cannot say we love God and then not obey Him. Our obedience is an outward expression of our love for God. Now in, in Isaiah 9:1, uh, things start looking a little brighter for the Israelites and for us as Isaiah continues to prophesy. This is what he says. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And just, you know, if you're wondering about those strange names, Zebulon and Naphtali, they were sons of Israel. And when they came in and conquered the land, every one of the tribes of Israel got a piece of land. So what they're talking about was, is the land that was designated to Zebulon, the son of, of Isaac, and the land that was, was designated to Naphtali. And Isaiah says that there's going to come a time when... There will be no more gloom or anguish, but a glory will be coming to the land. Now, at this point, Isaiah is not only prophesying about the future of Israel, but he is prophesying about the future coming of the Messiah. And if you can switch to the next slide, future coming of the Messiah, 700 years later, The Messiah did come, and he brought and continues to bring hope to a world dominated by a foreign enemy, and that foreign enemy is sin. Next slide. Hope to those who are passing through life hopeless and hungry, enraged in distress and darkness, in gloom and anguish because of sin. So how is the Messiah going to do this? How is he going to rescue the world from this conquered enemy. Isaiah nine two tells us how and the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the light in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So Isaiah is saying there's gonna be a time when a great light will come. And this great light is going to rescue people from darkness. This great light is going to pull them out of sin and darkness and into life and light. So th- I want to um, explain or tell you a little bit about what the word darkness means. It, it, the translation of the word darkness includes a progression of darkness. So our sin, left unrepented, will drive us into darkness. And then those who sink into darkness will keep sinking into greater darkness. And when I read that, I thought, well, that, that kind of seems impossible. How can dark be darker? You know, is it, how can there be a greater darker? And then I thought about what's taking place in the Middle East right now. And you can come to no other conclusion than that, yes, there is darkness, and then there is deep darkness. The words translated deep darkness includes shadow and death. There are those who are walking in darkness, and then there are those who darkness has so overpowered them that they are living in death's shadow. The promise in Isaiah is great light will shine on them both. This prophecy is repeated in Matthew four twelve through 17. Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali, so in Jesus' day, the region of Zebulon and Naphtali was now called Capernaum. This happened so that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. The um, term Galilee of the Gentiles is literally a circuit of the nations. So great light has come to circulate through every nation. And when you think of, you know, a circulation is something that is perpetual. It just continues. So this great light has come to to rescue people from darkness and sin and this great light is there to circulate through every single nation not just america but iran not just not just israel but saudi arabia this great light has come to circulate through every nation From that time, the word goes on to say, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the promised great light who Isaiah prophesied about. And with his coming, he brought into the world another kingdom in sharp contrast to the kingdom of darkness. And that kingdom is the kingdom of light. Next slide. John 8:12 says, Jesus spoke to the people and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there we see it again. Jesus said, if you follow me, you never have to walk in darkness. You never have to sin and step into that dark place um, ever again, because I am the light of life. So Jesus came to manifest to the world, God, his life displayed and continues to display through those who are carriers of light, that's you and I, divine illumination that reveals the darkness and the sin that drove us there and imparts light and life. Following Jesus leads us out of the darkness of sin and into light the light of life makes it possible for us to never walk in darkness we do not focus this is important because we don't have to focus on trying hard not to sin cuz no matter how hard we try not to sin we're never going to we're never going to be good enough You can't squeeze good behavior out of us. You just can't do it. The only way to walk out of darkness is to follow Jesus. The only way to get rid of the sin in our lives is to have our eyes focused on Jesus and to follow him. Mark 1, 2 through 4 says, Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John was the forerunner for Jesus. And John was preparing the way for the people to receive Jesus when he came up on the scene. To receive the light of life. And the way that he prepared them was teaching them repentance from sin. The call to repentance is the call out of the kingdom of darkness. If we answer that call, we are brought into the kingdom of light. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So the call to repentance, the enlightenment of where we we are um, in relationship to him, that is a call to repentance and when we answer the call to repentance that is the first step of walking out of darkness and walking into the kingdom of light. John nine says this was the true light that comes into the world enlightens every person. Now you know I think that's, that's very interesting. The light Uh, The light of life enlightens every person, not just some people. Not, you know, I've heard people say, well, what's God going to do about all the people who never heard? You know, then what? You know, trying to get us into a place where we make judgment calls that only God can make. But the word says here that it's it's not possible because it says that he the true the light enlightens every person who comes into the world. And everyone has an opportunity to choose light or to choose darkness. Those who choose darkness are those who choose to remain in their sin or remain in rebellion. John 1 4 says, In him was life. And the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it or did not overpower it. His life is our light. Darkness cannot overpower light, not even deep darkness. It's not possible. When we are born from above, true light lives inside of us, we become partakers of his divine nature. We have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son or the kingdom of light. Therefore, Romans 13, 11 through 14 says, Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. You know, there are sleeping Christians you know, there there are, we get lulled into a place where we just, just become disconnected from the Spirit of God. And we, we are just sleeping. We're, we're clueless. We have no idea what's going on in our hearts, how God is, is wanting to direct us and move us. We've fallen asleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let's rid ourselves of deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, And I, you know, I went, well, like, what's debauchery? Oh, you debauched, you know, shame on you. I had to look that up, what is debauchery? It is excess indulgence in sensual pleasures, those things that pleases the senses. So I take it to mean like it's like overeating, you know, just excess indulgence, Uh, drinking too much. Um, Excess indulgence in what pleases the flesh, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Notice that they don't have murder in there, you know. Notice that they don't have um, child trafficking in there. You know, those things that we consider is so terrible. You know, what's, what's in here? Strife, jealousy you know things that probably we all experience at, at least once or twice a day you know so so it's not these are who these are what paul is saying are deeds of darkness and he's saying to rid ourselves of them so wake up sleeping christians rid yourselves of deeds of darkness and i thought of Saul when he was on the road to damascus and Saul, he was he was he fully believed that what he was doing was what God had had petitioned him or commissioned him to do. He was obeying God and he was doing a work that God would be totally pleased with him for doing. And that was persecuting Christians. And that was even taking them and and putting them into prison and even them being killed you know that's what Saul just and he believed that he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do and so he's on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden there is this great light and he falls off his horse and he he hears this voice saying Saul Saul you know why are you why are you persecuting me And who are you? And he says, this is, you know, Lord Jesus. And I I found that really interesting because when we sin, when we sin, David said, it's against thee and thee only that I have sinned. And so Jesus didn't say to them, to, to Saul, well, you're persecuting Peter, you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting the... He said, you're persecuting me. And that's very important for us to realize um, that when we sin, no matter what it is, you know, lie, you know, the word says that liars don't go to heaven, and and how many people, you know, we we think it's okay to tell little white lies that don't, you know, we think oh, murderers don't, liars, don't don't gain entrance to heaven, and so whenever we miss the mark, so to speak, realizing that it is God. That we are sinning against. Sure, we hurt one another. Sure, our sins affect the lives of other people, and that is something that God's gonna that God will, God will walk you through if you've done it or you've had it done to them. But ultimately, when we sin, it's against God that we sin, and so this bright light. It blinded him, and he went into town, and when Ananias laid hands on him, the scales fell off of his, off of his eyes, and he could see. And I thought about that, and I thought about, what's the difference between a s- scales and and blinders? Because the word says about blinders being put on your eyes by this world. Um, so what's the difference between scales and blinders? And I thought, oh, I'm going to look up the word scales, like, bet it's going to be really, really cool. And it just... Means scales, <laughs> fish scales. <laughs> you know that's it. Oh, well, I look up blinders. I believe it just means blinders. You know. But I thought about why God would do that. And did you ever, if you, if you've been following the release of the hostages in the Middle East, you would know that some of them walked out, and and just being in that dark place for so long, it was actually painful for them to come into the light. And so I'm wondering if maybe God allowed scales to be on on Saul's eyes just to ease the transition, so to speak, that it would not be so painful to ease the transition of going from darkness to light. And that's the mercy of God. You know, sometimes the transition for us of coming out of a world of darkness and coming out of sin is so painful that, that um, God kind of like eases it a little bit for us as we're moving into his light. So um, deeds of darkness are those words that are works that have an empty purpose or intent. They're works that advance you and your agenda and not God's. It is any deed or work that is birthed out of our flesh and not out of the light of life who lives within us. So, how do we avoid that since our carnal nature is alive and kicking and will be until we move from this life to the next life? By submitting those desires to God, then His desires will become our desires. And the Word also says that we are warriors of light, and God has given us an armor to clothe ourselves in. And verse 14 told us what that armor was clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provisions for the desires of the flesh. There should be no chinks in our armor. Every day it is good practice. I clothe myself in the Lord Jesus today. I put on compassion. I put on goodness. I put on kindness. I put on humility. And we walk into the world clothed and robed in Christ. That's our armor of light. Isaiah 60 says it this way. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." So I realize that it's quite possible that today in a room like this that there are some of us walking in darkness in some areas of our life. And then there are those who are living in deep darkness, those who never made Jesus the Lord of their life. And there is good news. The Spirit of God is here to enlighten that darkness. And when he does, there's only one response, repentance. I want to just a little bit... Um, just touch on what repentance is. Joel 2, 12 through 13 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. True light demands true repentance. I remember people teaching that oh, repentance is just doing a 180-degree turn and walking in another direction, and that is true. But what it fails to do is acknowledge the, the um, position of the heart when we're repenting. It fails to talk about how our hearts are ripped wide open by the realization that we sin against the living God. And every time we sin, we are committing adultery, spiritual adultery against God because we have chosen a way and not the way. We have chosen deception and lies and not the truth. We live a life that is contrary to the life of light. It is missing the mark. Next slide. It is missing the mark, but not that of a bullseye that makes us feel some satisfaction that we have missed the bulls that we may have missed the bullseye, but at least we hit the mark. And I know. I've done that. I said, well, you know, at least I get on the board. You know, I got to get some credit for that. Um, and, in, and in this age of acceptance of any, any sort of action or lifestyle, unless it's godly, we may fall into, tr- into the trap of comparing ourselves with others. Well, I don't sin like them. or at least I didn't do that. Sin is sin. And it's all birthed out of the lust of the flesh, and it all ends in death. It is missing the mark, next slide, but not of a fictitious bullseye, but of God's glory heart that is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It's falling short of his glory, not a bullseye. The more through relationship we see his glory, his holiness, the more we will see our sin as something to weep and rend our hearts over. One of my most favorite accounts in the Bible is in Luke chapter 7 when the woman brought her alabaster box into um, the Pharisees house where Jesus was was um, having supper and um, I really see this as like I I imagine like they it says in the word that she was a sinner so everybody, in town, knew she was a sinner. We don't really know what the sin was. We can guess. We can imagine. But um, she would have faced the ridicule. She would have faced the judgments, the condemnations, the accusations, the pointing of the finger because you're doing this and you're doing that. And she may have heard that Jesus was in another town, and Jesus told this man who was... In 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 a bed, unable to walk, he said to him, "Your sins are forgiven." And then he said, "Know that the power, know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins." And so, when that leaked to her town, that Jesus said this and that Jesus did this, perhaps something stirred up inside of her that maybe hope. Maybe that hunger stirred up inside of her that maybe she doesn't have to continue to live her life in darkness. Maybe she doesn't have to continue in this sin. Maybe she doesn't have to face the ridicule of the other people in the town. So then when she heard that Jesus came into her town, she just grabbed her alabaster box and and filled with perfume. And I don't know if she did that intentionally. Or maybe she did it so that um, people wouldn't break in and steal it because it was the only possession she had. It was, it was her sustenance. And so she goes, and she goes into this house, and the darkness inside of her immediately, she, she hadn't, we don't know if she ever, she may have never seen Jesus before, but the darkness inside of her would have been immediately drawn to the light because darkness is drawn to light. And think of the crowd, and if you see pictures of the houses then, they were all open, so there was not just the people in having dinner. There were people standing around looking and watching and listening. And she would have walked right through all of that, through the judgments, through the wor- through the whispers, through the gossips, through the shame, through the condemnation. She would have walked all through of that, because the darkness within her just gravitated to the light, went right to the light. And then when she stood there, it was like, what do I do? What does darkness do when it's standing before light? What should she do? I don't know. I don't know what I should do and then her tears start falling and they they fall on his feet and maybe she thought, "Oh, this man, this man is you know, he's he's not he, he's just too holy to have even my tears defile him. I just can't let that happen." So so she wipes them off and then, "Well, what do I have? What do I have?" and and she has her alabaster box and she, and she just breaks it open. Now that Alabaster box was every bit of profit that her sin gave her. And she brought it in and she, she just broke it open and she poured it on her, his feet in adoration. You see, when darkness meets light, there is no protocol. There, there, there is no, there's no uh, formula to follow. You don't know what to do. And, and but, but let me tell you that, let me tell you this, condemnation is not light. It could be a false light. She was not drawn to condemnation. She recognized true light. She had the condemnation. She had the accusations. She knew she was a sinner. She knew she shouldn't, everybody was telling her that. But it was true light that defeated the darkness inside of her. Think of Peter when they were out in the boat and they caught this multitude of fish and and Peter looks at Jesus and his knees grow weak. And, you know, who is this man? There's no box to put him in. There's no label to put on him. He is far above. He is otherworldly. I've never encountered this before. What do I do? What do I do? And his knees just buckle. And he just falls on his knees and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That was his only response. That was all he could do. You see, when we come face to face with holiness, we are undone. We are undone. And we have no choice. Oh, Well, we do have a choice. We can, our hearts can grow hard. We can turn around and we can walk out of the room. Or we can recognize that if I draw close to this light, this light is going to completely envelop me and change me and I will become that man or that woman that God, wants, that God has created me to be and the deep inside I've always wanted to be. And so what I would say to you today is sin, sin is sin. It will cause you to lose possession of your inheritance. And I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about living far below who, you cre- who God created you to be. Sin still needs to be acknowledged. It still needs to be confessed. It still needs to be repented of. Sin will still separate us from God to some degree. And so when, not if, when Holy Spirit comes and enlightens the darkness within you, don't ignore it, don't make light of it, Oh, God knows I'm human. He knows I sin. Don't make light of it. But just stand there with facing holiness, facing light, and allow it to penetrate the very depths of your being and cause you to just become unglued and respond and allow yourself to be overcome by light.